Billie Holiday is one of the most iconic jazz performers of all time. Her voice is certainly unmistakable, but for many, her religious sensibilities may be invisible. In Religion Around Billie Holiday, Tracy Fessenden delineates the religious worlds that shaped Holiday and her music. Fessenden takes the reader through Holiday's short but full life by placing it within the context of Catholicism, black vernacular music, jazz compositions, and the culture of American celebrity. She shows how race, gender, and religious conditions guided her sound and formed the prism through which her genius shone. In our conversation, we discussed Holiday's early Catholic formation, the Jewishness of the American songbook, Afro-Protestant notions of redemption, confessional performance, the eclectic religious orbits of her jazz contemporaries, strange fruit and the vigilante faith of some Southerners, the cinematic representation of a musician's life, and the mytho-poetic nature of Holiday's iconicity. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books and Religion, a channel of the New Books Network. And now my conversation with Tracy Fessenden about Religion Around Billie Holiday, published with Penn State University Press in 2018. Welcome, Tracy. Thanks for joining us on New Books and Religion. How are you? I'm doing well, Christian. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for writing such a, a wonderful book. It's it's uh, beautifully written. It's really a joy to uh, to read, um, and it brings up so many interesting kind of intersections in terms of uh, American religious and musical history and uh, issues of, of of race and gender and all sorts of great stuff. So I'm excited to talk about the book. Uh, we always love to hear about our authors, though, uh, before we get into the book. So could you tell us a little bit about uh, some of your training, uh, mentors, or uh, scholarship that has been formative in uh, shaping the, the types of uh, projects you work on? Um, how was your entry into the study of religion? Wow. I, uh, I had an unusual uh, formation, I think. I majored in English in college uh, at Yale. And when I left Yale in the mid-80s, I had a sense that uh, English as it was taught and practiced there might not be the direction that I wanted to go in. I was looking for a place where I could ask bigger questions and uh, maybe have a little bit more uh, freedom to to um, uh, look more broadly at, at other kinds of expression. Uh, Yale in the 80s, of course, was extremely theoretical. And although I was drawn to that language, I thought that there might be uh, other vocabularies, other conversations that uh, would be uh, nice to, to know how to join, nice to be a part of. So I looked, I, I took a little bit of time between college and graduate school, and I looked at uh, various kinds of programs that would allow me to do literature in conjunction with some other things. Things. And I discovered religion and literature, which at that time uh, was uh, done at a few places, Chicago, Yale. Uh, the, the program at Chicago had been started by Nathan Scott, who had moved to Virginia. And that's how I ended up at Virginia. I applied to the program there in religion and literature. And for whatever reason, 
they decided to gamble on me, even though I had absolutely no formal training in religious studies when I started graduate school. So uh, the program at at Virginia was very uh, eclectic. We were able to take classes in lots of different areas, which was terrific. But uh, when it, uh, when I graduated, (laughs) you know, I think I applied for every single job uh, that uh, came around in religious studies that year, because I realized I don't, quite have a specialty. I can just fit myself into uh, into whatever uh, conversation you want me to, to be a part of. Not necessarily the best training to begin writing about something uh, that, uh, uh, you know, I could claim to be any kind of expert in. But, uh, you know, after uh, a few years of teaching, my first teaching job was at Millsaps College in Jackson, Mississippi, which was a wonderful uh, beginning to my career because it was very uh, teaching intensive, very student focused, and I was able to teach a lot of different things. Uh, When it came time to think about my first book, I realized that the way in which religion and literature had been taught at the University of Virginia wasn't quite the way in which I wanted to pursue it. And uh, that is, uh, in in, in general, the sense was that uh, we could talk about religion uh, as it was mediated through very secular forms and just sort of assume that that's where religion uh, was most active uh, it wasn't necessarily in the pews. It was happening all around us. And that was very uh, appealing to me. But what I was missing was any sense of a particular genealogy by which we would recognize religion as such when we found it in very secular forms. One of the books that uh, was very influential for me in the early 90s was uh, a book by an English professor at Berkeley, Jenny Franchot, who wrote a book called Roads to Rome about how 19th century discourses about all kinds of things, not just religion, uh, reflected or mediated a kind of Protestant anxiety about Catholicism. And this was a a, a nice way for me to think about the way in which Protestant forms more easily translated into secular forms than did uh, Catholic or Jewish uh, forms in in, in American uh, public and political and legal discourses particularly. So I began to think about that, how what we take uh, to be the secular is really a kind of a uh, very um, uh, diffused form of Protestant discourse that still does the kind of boundary maintenance between what is legitimate religion and what may uh, be considered uh, problematic or uh, overly um, overly uh, uh, literal or overly embodied or overly um, um, Uh, extravagant uh, kinds of religious claims. So that's how I got into the kind of work that uh, became the the, the basis for my first book, Culture and Redemption, which was all about American literature and American religion as a kind of Protestant, uh, a a large Protestant uh, articulation of the secular into which other religious forms needed to find their way in somehow or not. Uh, so that was a, a, a wonderful project. It, uh, for me, it, it, was, uh, it was extremely enjoyable, and uh, I've been uh, very happy with the reception of that book and the kinds of projects that it has uh, launched uh, for other, other scholars. Uh, the Billie Holiday book uh, was something that I didn't come up with entirely on my own. The series editor for the Religion Around series, Peter Kaufman, who is now at the University of Richmond, 
uh, had the idea, uh, based on uh, some of his own work and some of the frustrations, I guess, he was feeling in talking about Shakespeare, uh, which is uh, one of his uh, um, areas of wonderful expertise, talking about Shakespeare and religion without necessarily talking about uh, particular uh, church forms or particular controversies controversies uh, over conversion and so on. He wanted to be able to talk about Shakespeare in the context of a religious world uh, that might have come to impinge on Shakespeare and Shakespeare's production in ways that, uh, uh, you know, might not necessarily come to our attention if we weren't looking for uh, the way in which religion just uh, sort of floats in the background for many artists, uh, uh, for for all of us generally, and influences us whether we are conscious of making religious kinds of decisions or not. So he uh, wrote a book, Religion Around Shakespeare, and then invited some other authors to think about iconic figures whom we could approach in this way uh, as shaped by religion in their environment without themselves necessarily uh, needing to be thought of or framed or approached as religious figures in their own right. So he came uh, to Arizona and talked with me about this project and said, if you were to do a book like this, uh, whom would you write about? And just out of my mouth came Billie Holiday because the, the, the project struck me as so inventive and ingenious and uh, the, the, the premise seemed so um, open-ended and very exciting in that way. And I thought, well, if I'm going to sit down for a few years and write about someone, anyone, uh, who could I write about and never, ever grow bored, never grow tired, never um, think that this was not a good idea? So he said, brilliant, write religion around Billie Holiday. So I said, okay. And then uh, a couple of years later, he said, so are you really going to do this? And I said, well, uh, okay. And then... (laughs) I had a sabbatical and was able to uh, put a proposal together and think about how it might work. Um, but it was really, you know, it was kind of a, a, a dare. I thought, okay, you know, I, this is someone I adore. I know very little about her. Uh, I don't, I didn't necessarily think I had the chops to write a biographical kind of project about, uh, about Billy Holiday, about a jazz singer, but there were, um, you know, there, there there were some things that I that looking back now I see did prepare me for this kind of project, or that I was able to use from my uh, from my earlier from my earlier work. Culture and Redemption ends with a chapter on F. Scott Fitzgerald and the Jazz Age. So there I am picking up, uh, you know, in the 1920s, which is when uh, I start to think about Billie Holiday, uh, who was uh, uh, born in 1915. Uh, thinking about jazz as a, uh, a very complicated, rich, layered, uh, collaborative production uh, among uh, American uh, musical artists and the audiences and producers and uh, interpreters who and songwriters uh, who shaped their production and our reception of it. That was a very, very interesting project to bring religion into. Uh, so I, uh, I it, it was a wonderful, wonderful exercise for me, and I, uh, I'm, I'm pleased with the way that the book has turned out, and uh, pleased with the reception, and uh, glad I took Peter Kaufman up on his offer. Yes, yes, we're we're glad as well. It's a, like I said, it is a wonderful book, and uh, we're excited to uh, to talk to you about it. I want to um, 
just before we get into uh, Billie Holiday herself, um, I, I, I really like this Religion Around series. I think it is uh, very innovative in, in, in many ways. Um, and uh, I'm wondering, what, what was your approach to the concept of Religion Around? Because there, there are a multitude of ways you could, you could do this and think about it. This I, I think you're very successful. Um, but Peter and other authors in the series um, have their own kind of uh, approach. So perhaps what, what might you now, having written this book, how might you advise others to, to think about this religion around concept as an approach? Well, one of the things that I, I, uh, I'm grateful to Peter for, and I think that the, the, the premise of the series allows, is to talk about religion in ways that are very specific, but that don't necessarily involve us in making particular claims on behalf of uh, the figure at the center of these, these studies. So, uh, for example, I I, I I get a lot of questions about Billie Holiday. Well, was she Catholic? Was she a believer? Uh, did, did she uh, believe X or Y? And that's not really my uh, my 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 interest or my emphasis. It's not uh, those aren't questions I feel qualified to answer because I don't have access to her interior life. But we do have access to the world around uh, Billie Holiday or the world around these figures, and I think that we can talk about religion as something uh, that uh, had very specific kinds of, of um, powers, very specific ways of appearing, ways of impinging uh, upon Billie Holiday and others. We don't, uh, if, if we are interested in a figure who maybe him or herself was not particularly religious, we can talk about religion without defaulting to some amorphous category of spirituality or ethics or um, something that is very uh, nonspecific but feels a little bit, uh, you know, a, a little bit religious. We can still talk about Judaism. We can talk about Catholicism. We can talk about various uh, church practices or church doctrines and think about those as having real effects in the lives of people whom they touched in whatever way, even if uh, the figure at the center of these inquiries doesn't uh, him or herself uh, profess a particular religious uh, uh, identity or a set of religious beliefs. So that was something that I felt very, um, very good about, that we can show religion to be to be important to have a worldly force, a material force, a very specific kind of presence in the world without necessarily needing to pin down anyone's specific religious identity in the process. Uh, I've gotten some, uh, I think one of the big surprises for many people who read this book is how shaped Billie Holiday was, as I argue she was, uh, by her Catholic upbringing, particularly her, uh, the time that she spent in a, in a Catholic reform school in Baltimore. And I sense that some people want to f- read Billie Holiday as being a little bit more Catholic than she ends up being in this book, or they're frustrated that she doesn't become uh, or, or doesn't uh, come to appear as someone who was uh, particularly uh, graced by her uh, Catholic immersion, wasn't uh, uh, saved or redeemed by a particular relationship to Catholicism. Uh, but the, uh, the, the the sources I have and the, 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 the kinds of interpretations that I was moved to pursue suggest that she was very shaped by uh, Catholicism, even though she didn't necessarily um, imagine herself as having uh, uh, been, uh, been, been 
saved or or delivered from the very very difficult life that she led as a result. Now, um, I hope there are not listeners who don't know who Billie Holiday uh, was, but uh, perhaps you know. Even you said you didn't know all the details of her life. Um, perhaps since the whole book is really. A, in many ways, looking at her biographically, um, can can you just kind of set us up with a kind of beef, uh, brief background of who she was and how she was generally remembered? Yes, she was born in 1915 in Baltimore uh, to a, a single mom, very, very difficult childhood was singing in speakeasies and brothels uh, in Baltimore by the time she was 12 came to New York shortly after that and made a a name for herself in Harlem. By the time she was 20, uh, or not even 20, uh, she was recording with uh, Benny Goodman, uh, uh, later on with Lester Young. Uh, She was someone who who was recognized by uh, her most... Uh, most renowned jazz contemporaries as a genius from a very, very early age. Count Basie, whom she toured with when she was uh, barely 20, 22, uh, said that on the tours, the other members of the band would listen to her records after the after they had finished uh, playing, uh, j- j- just to learn from her, which was unheard of because most of the singers uh, who accompanied the big bands in the 30s and 40s were considered uh, almost uh, an add-on. They were not the reason people came out to see the band, and they were considered uh, window dressing in a sense. But she was very much a musician, uh, considered very much a musician. She sang in a way that is is so influential um, that I think when we hear her, when people hear her for the first time, she doesn't sound like someone who was singing from uh, 60 or 70 years ago. She sounds like someone who was singing very much today. Uh, you know, my, 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 my kids think that this stuff is, you know, not that old. It's mom's music, so it's pretty old, but <laughs> it's not as old as they think it is uh, because it sounds to them like anything they might hear when they, uh, you know, when they walk into to Starbucks and it's uh, more, um, you know, jazz or, or, or grown-up music. So uh, her way of uh, shaping the notes, her way of famously lagging behind the beat, sort of singing to a different tempo than her accompanists, was something that she really introduced as a vocalist, and it transformed vocal jazz. I think it also transformed the way in which in which jazz is played by anyone. Uh, her most famous song that I think most listeners will, will uh, recognize is Strange Fruit, her song about lynching that she sang in uh, 1938. Uh, God Bless the Child is also a song that many people are familiar with. That's a, a song that's been covered many times. Some Billie Holiday songs are, uh, are, are songs that many, many other people have, have sung. She sang the, the American Songbook. She sang a lot of uh, songs from Broadway and early Hollywood. So they're songs that we know from... Uh, just sort of the, what, what American music sounds like to most of us, 20th century American music. Then there are songs that others cover. Uh, I, uh, God Bless the Child is, has been sung by all kinds of people. But then Strange Fruit is, I think, hers alone in that if you're going to sing Strange Fruit, you, uh, you are really taking on an enormous, uh, an enormous project of being a true to her voice, to her vision, and to what she wanted that, uh, I think, that song to do for listeners. 
So uh, she recorded throughout her short life. She began recording in 1933 when she was only 18. She died in 1959, and she was recording right up until uh, until the very end. I think even if your if, even if your listeners don't imagine that they have heard Billie Holiday, as soon as they hear a Billie Holiday song, they will recognize her her voice. Her voice is uh, very distinctive. Uh, and uh, inimitable, even though people have for 70 years tried to imitate her, her phrasing and her way of, of, of shading the, uh, the words that she sings. Now, um, in the first chapter, you really uh, get at what this kind of series is all about by exploring um, many of the tensions between uh, the a myth of American greatness um, and the black experience uh, in America. Um, what what are some of the important social, musical, religious currents um, of the mid twentieth century uh, that we need to think about uh, when we're thinking about Billie Holiday? Well, I think you know one of the uh, it's 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 useful to think about how black music reaches audiences, black and white. What are the ways in which the musical tradition that Billie Holiday was brought into and uh, with whose practitioner she was always compared, even though she has a little bit of a a different trajectory from the more familiar ones that we associate with uh, black music, uh, mid 20th century black music. It's interesting for me to think about how that how that music uh, reached audiences. So uh, of course, in the uh, the 19th century, we have black music or music that is associated with uh, uh, with the, uh, the 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 experience of enslaved African Americans on plantations. That music is made very light, made funny, and uh, delivered as minstrelsy by usual usually white performers who made a national musical repertoire out of songs that were sung in the guise or the persona of black slaves on a, on a plantation. So uh, that's partly how what we think of as black music um, gets mediated broadcast to large audiences. Minstrel troops would go from town to town and uh, play a repertoire that then would become known to people all over uh, um, the the places where uh, these troops toured. Uh, in the 20s, record companies who wanted to make a profit uh, without uh, paying their artists uh, huge amounts of money found that signing black blues singers was incredibly profitable because these records uh, sold in, in very large quantities. There was a concerted effort to uh, introduce uh, black music to black audiences to sell black records in dollar stores uh, from uh, in, in um, the, the, uh, the itineraries of traveling salesmen uh, to sell records to go along with tent shows where many black performers um, made their names, drew, drew audiences. And black performers, unlike white performers who at that time were often still imitating black performers, people like Al Jolson were singing in blackface and making huge amounts of money, but the black performers themselves were sometimes paid $5, $10 a side. Billie Holiday, when she cut her first, her first records, was paid $7.50 uh, per, per song, no royalties. So uh, black voices get on record in a number of different uh, ways that uh, uh, together tell a very interesting story about the way in which 
uh, black music comes to be America's music. Uh, it's interesting that by the late 30s, producers like John Hammond, the uh, white, wealthy uh, uh, empresario who delivered so much black music to, to white audiences in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, made a, uh, a stage show at Carnegie Hall, which in his view would recreate the history of black music from spirituals to swing as he uh, as he named the concert so he was already looking at black music as having a very particular kind of history that he could deliver to white audiences largely white audiences in the form of a kind of living diorama a living uh, genealogy of, uh, of black musical sound and by that time by the late 30s uh, the wealthy white producers who were uh, still in a position of determining which black singers got a hearing, uh, which black uh, musical forms were supported. Uh, They were um, uh, making the case that uh, what the music that America itself was listening to, was gravitating toward, uh, had its beginnings in uh, a black vernacular culture. Uh, So Billie Holiday comes into this tradition, of course, a, a, a large part of the black musical tradition that is being broadcast in the 30s, being uh, mediated and uh, still uh, being very lived in very powerful ways, is the black church tradition, which produces what became you know, what we became, became uh, aware of as gospel, but which also launched many of the uh, the great blues singers in the in the 20s and 30s. Billie Holiday didn't come out of what we think of as a black church tradition, an Afro-Protestant tradition, because she was raised in uh, in a city that was sort of on the, the, the cusp of the South and the North. She did not attend, uh, as far as we know, uh, an Afro-Protestant church. Her musical training in church was in the uh, Gregorian chants of the Catholic Mass, which as a Catholic school girl, both at a, uh, at a what was known as a a school for colored girls, a school for black, uh, a a school for a Catholic school for colored girls, as it was called, but she attended in Baltimore. And then a reform school, the house of the good shepherd for colored girls, where she was sent at age 10. Uh, She sang every morning at 6am, a Catholic mass uh, with um, the chants that went along with that. So her training was very different from the training of many of the, uh, the the singers that we think of as her contemporaries, Bessie Smith or Mahalia Jackson, who have those big church voices. Billie Holiday never had that kind of voice. But she uh, certainly knew that that was the musical conversation that she would find herself in. Uh, she knew how to uh, frame a response to that tradition. God bless the child. She called a swing spiritual. This was her way of sort of entering into that conversation between spirituals and swing. So I'm very interested in the way in which uh, Black artists navigated uh, situations that were uh, very uh, difficult, very aversive, very much um, uh, stacked against. They're having uh, a lot of autonomy. They're having a lot of uh, um, wherewithal in decisions about how they sounded, whom they sang for, who recorded them, and nevertheless created uh, what we think of as American music. Now, uh, you move on to um, Holiday's 1956 autobiography, Lady Sings the Blues, and you place this within many of the, the, the realities of her social upbringing. Um, and you, you read this in interesting ways in terms of uh, – 
the the influences around um, how we might understand this. Um, so, so how would you say we can read her autobiography um, alongside both kind of popular um, or more literary influences? Um, and and uh, what role does her Catholic formation play uh, in, in shaping her life? Uh, you discuss this in this chapter a lot. Yes. Well, her her co-writer or her ghostwriter, as uh, many people assume, uh, on that book was a guy named William Dufty. And he was a very interesting figure. He was a prolific writer. He wrote for a lot of uh, he wrote for the, the New York Post when it was a, a pretty respectable paper. He also wrote for a lot of uh, sort of under underworld magazines. He wrote uh, confessional kinds of, of, of narratives. He ghost wrote a number of other books uh, that were uh, sometimes very pop in their subject matter. Sometimes themselves a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, tawdry. <laughs> he wrote a um, uh, a confessional narrative uh, of a uh, with a priest who described the underside of what it meant to be a uh, a priest in America in the in the in in uh, the thirties and forties. So he he was a good writer, but he had a real sense for a story and uh, what would make a story sell. And he liked being a little bit edgy. And he was very drawn to Billie Holiday because of his politics, but also because of uh, her story. He thought that he could, uh, with her, tell a, a very, uh, very compelling story. And he himself was uh, elapsed Catholic. Uh, he had been uh, married to a friend of Billie Holiday's and later to Gloria Swanson, the Hollywood star with whom he wrote. A, a book about uh, diet, of all things. Uh, but his son told me that he was uh, very openly gay and uh, um, eventually um, found a, a partner with whom uh, he lived out the rest of his life. But so his relationship to Catholicism was always about the closet and about the way in which uh, Catholicism uh, provides certain structures, certain narratives for navigating a life that is lived a little bit on the on the down low. So he uh, approached Billie Holiday about uh, when they began working together on uh, Lady Sings the Blues. And he said, tell me when you started lying in the confessional. He knew she was Catholic and he joked that they saw eye to eye because they were both Irish Catholic. She apparently had some Irish uh, in her, but uh, that was not uh, her, her the, tr- the tradition she was raised in. But he thought that they could uh, understand each other on that level. Uh, she said, you know, no one has ever asked me that. I've been questioned by all kinds of feds. I've been, uh, you know, I've been cross-examined in court. No one has ever asked me when I started lying in the confessional. So it was a very interesting way to initiate their collaboration. And of course, in Christian tradition, this is the way a lot of spiritual biographies get written uh, between a, a confessor and a, uh, a saint or a, a, a figure in relation to that, uh, to that confessor. So uh, he, he brought out uh, from Billie Holiday, and he also used a number of other uh, sources that were available, other interviews that she had done. But he was able to elicit from her a kind of, I, I think of it as a kind of spiritual biography, uh, a narrative of her struggles of the uh, very perilous situations that she had come out of. Uh, it didn't have a, a happy ending because just as the book was going to press, she was arrested again uh, for, uh, for uh, possession of heroin. Uh, he wanted the book to have a 
and to, to appeal to audiences who were looking for something that was a little bit gritty, a little bit edgy, which was Billie Holiday's reputation at that point. But I think that he and she too also were uh, rooting this story through the structures of the uh, narratives of the Catholic saints to which she was exposed in uh, the House of the Good Shepherd, and which he also knew as a as a, a kid who had come through Catholic schools. Uh, he they they both were drilled in the Baltimore Catechism, so there are parts of the uh, parts of the the biography that uh, seem or the autobiography that seem almost answers to questions about. Uh, what kinds of sins would you need to confess? How would you make a full reckoning of your uh, your history, your behaviors? Uh, and I think, in that sense, it was a it was a collaborative spiritual biography uh, that he helped Billy Holiday to write. Yeah, it's interesting the uh, the way you frame it through through that kind of Catholic lens. I think it's uh, successful in pulling out a lot of uh, kind of. Uh, details that we might not think about or other people might not think about. Um, in the in the next chapter, you uh, look at kind of the intersection of jazz um, and film in many ways, uh, both films that exist and films that were uh, imagined um, as, a, as a lens to understand some of the religious confluences uh, of musicians' worlds uh, that they existed in. So can you tell us... Um, kind of how, how the story played out in the life of, of Holiday and uh, what it can tell us about the kind of spiritual migrations that in, informed her musical production? Yes, the, 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 the chapter of that title is The Story of Jazz, and that was the title for a film that Orson Welles planned to make in the early 40s. He uh, had met Billie Holiday. He uh, was quite enamored of her. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's likely that they were having an affair when she left New York and went to uh, Hollywood to sing in a club that uh, she had been singing in New York at a club called uh, Cafe Society. And uh, a Los Angeles producer wanted a West Coast Cafe Society. So she went out there to sing and met Orson Welles. Orson Welles was also a great jazz fan and he wanted to make a film about um, Louis Armstrong. And he was using Louis Armstrong's biography and he wanted Billie Holiday to play Bessie Smith uh, in that film. And uh, Bessie Smith and Billy and Bessie Smith and Louis Armstrong recorded songs that Billie Holiday would have heard for the first time when she was a kid in Baltimore uh, singing in brothels. She talks about playing their records uh, on the Victrola in the brothels when she uh, had a moment to herself. So this would have been a very, very exciting uh, project. What happened, though, is that um, Orson Welles was um, Pearl Harbor happened and uh, Orson Welles, uh, like many other uh, uh, creative uh, producers, filmmakers, was uh, dispatched to various parts of the world to engage in a, a project of cultural diplomacy that would try to strengthen hemispheric alliances. So Wells and Walt Disney and um, a number of other artists were sent to uh, Brazil. And uh, Walt Disney makes some, uh, some cartoons from this period. Uh, Orson Wells became very interested in Brazilian music and samba music. The story of Louis Armstrong that he was uh, going to make was set in New Orleans. And what he hoped to do was to, in a, in a 
a revised version of this film that he had begun to imagine with Billie Holiday, he was hoping to do something that would compare jazz and uh, Mardi Gras with samba music and carnival in, in, in Brazil. The film was never made. Uh, Billie Holiday um, uh, um, did some war work and, and, and got into some, uh, some trouble during the, the 1940s. Uh, the, the, the Orson Welles version of this film was abandoned. But in 1947, a group of principals came together and made a movie called New Orleans. And they took some of what Welles had abandoned for his uh, script for the story of jazz, which was the film that he wanted to make. Um, in the movie New Orleans, Louis Armstrong plays Louis Armstrong. Billie Holiday was tapped to play, uh, not Billie Holiday. She was rather put in the role of a singing maid. There are other uh, jazz musicians in the film who play themselves. The premise of New Orleans, which had also been the premise of Wells' abandoned movie, was to, uh, it, 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 in a sense, it was an early version of what some of your, uh, some of the, the people listening to this might know as the Ken Burns series on jazz, you know, that starts in New Orleans and then shows jazz moving into the, uh, the, the broader world. The film that Wells wanted to make starts in New Orleans and uh, moves, uh, follows Armstrong as he moves to Chicago and then to New York. And the film New Orleans, the 1947 movie where Billie Holiday plays the maid, uh, also does, uh, follows that same trajectory follows jazz in the person of Armstrong from New Orleans uh, up the Mississippi River to Chicago and then into the uh, the broader world. So it, the, the film that was made and the film that Wells wanted to make but didn't both track the story of jazz in a sense to the, the story of the Great Migration, the story of uh, black Southerners coming north and uh, shaping uh, musical forms, cultural forms, uh, along the way, uh, such that what we think of as urban music by the 30s or 40s is very much a, an African-American uh, production. Um, so uh, the the religious uh, angle there, I think, is very muted. Neither uh, Wells nor the producer of the, the 1947 New Orleans movie talks very much about New Orleans as a Catholic city or the ways in which blues, which primarily comes out of Afro-Protestant traditions, uh, mixes with jazz to become something that we, we that, that, that sounds very recognizable to us uh, by the, uh, the 30s and 40s. Uh, but if I were... Um, uh, if I had a hand in making either of those films, that's something that I would have wanted to bring forward. Um, another kind of interesting angle um, that you take here is through um, the kind of Jewishness of the American songbook. Um, and you look at uh, many of the relationships between uh, the, the blackness of jazz music, uh, but also the Jewishness of it. Um, so uh, how do religious narratives figure in jazz music? Uh, what were some of the connections between uh, black and Jewish musical productions? And then where does this kind of fit into uh, Holiday's life? That, you know, that was such a fascinating uh, story for me to, to delve into. And I, 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 I try to tell the story of this black Jewish collaboration that is jazz uh, through first the, uh, the figure of Armstrong, who 
on his deathbed uh, in uh, not not quite on his deathbed. He lived a little bit longer, but in uh, uh, in about 1970, he was really ailing and began to. He had had he had been traveling for. Uh, decades, really, but the last decades since suffering a heart attack 10 years earlier, still continuing to travel and to play as um, as a, a jazz ambassador, someone who traveled all over the world, uh, to uh, voice a kind of uh, a kind of freedom, a kind of uh, um, energy that the U.S. State Department wanted him to represent so that Americans would uh, have a, a, a particular image in the world that Armstrong could be the uh, the, the face of and the voice of. So he had been doing a great deal of cultural work, a great deal of work for uh, the American government as a musician, and his lungs were pretty much um, destroyed by this time. And so he, started, he was in, he was in uh, a, a hospital bed in Beth Israel Hospital in New York, and he starts writing his story, which he had done before. He had given us several versions of an autobiography. But this story, he sets in New Orleans. He calls it uh, the story of, uh, uh, you know, my, the, the, the story of Louis Armstrong and the Jewish family in New Orleans. And he writes about, he centers the story almost entirely on a family uh, named the Karnowskis, a large family, many, many children, uh, who lived in the neighborhood where he came up in New Orleans, a very, very poor neighborhood. Uh, Armstrong was uh, the the son of a, uh, a man who wasn't uh, necessarily around too much, a, a woman who uh, needed to work as a prostitute to uh, feed her children. He was raised by uh, grandmothers when his uh, mother was not around, but he also worked as a laborer himself from the age of five, bringing in a paycheck. And he worked for this Karnowski family, this Jewish family. And because he didn't, Armstrong didn't have adults in his own family around as much as uh, anyone might have liked to see, he was really taken in uh, by the, Karn- the Karnowski family. And he says in this narrative that they, they, they appreciated his singing. They taught him to sing. They gave him his first cornet. He, he changes a lot of the details that we know from his other uh, autobiographies, which uh, set his formation in a, in a very different frame that uh, um, emphasize other parts of his life. But in this version, he's talking about this Jewish family who took him in, who gave him his first horn, who appreciated his singing, who encouraged him to be someone, to be a, to be a musical uh, performer. And he talks about the Irving Berlin song, Russian Lullaby. In this short narrative that he writes, he, he, he copies out the words to Russian Lullaby four or five times. And the, the, the Irving Berlin song, Russian Lullaby, had not even been published then in the time that Armstrong is setting his reminiscences, but it's what he, it, it anchors all of his memories here. And what's so fascinating to me about that document is that it seems to be an attempt to articulate this love affair, this nurturing relationship between uh, Armstrong as a performer and all of the Jewish uh, mentors, producers, songwriters who, who 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 put him to business, who put him in business, who brought him out of New Orleans and 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 uh, helped him to become Louis Armstrong. Of course, he provided uh, the uh, the the presence, the genius, the talent that was Louis Armstrong, but his 
uh, manager for many years, uh, Joe Glazer, he loved, even though we know Joe Glazer was not uh, a particularly uh, savory figure, certainly not helpful to Billie Holiday. Uh, he sang uh, um, the, the American Songbook, so he sang the songs, the lyrics of many Jewish uh, composers and lyricists. And this relationship is one that uh, we often think of as, as quite fraught, the relationship between uh, Jews and African Americans in, in American history. But in Armstrong's narrative, he really portrays it as a love affair and as a, a family story, that the family that he grew up in, the family that made him who he, who he was, was a Jewish family. So Billie Holiday herself, of course, like uh, like any great singer in the in the thirties and forties, who was able to uh, uh, record and sing the uh, the music of uh, composers then who who sort of ran the song business, sang mostly Jewish songs. These were songs that were uh, written by uh, Irving Berlin, by the Gershwins, by Rodgers and Hammerstein, Rodgers and Hart, uh, Dorothy Fields. Uh, all of the great songs that we associate with Billie Holiday, the vast majority were written by um, Jewish songwriters. And the story of Jewish songwriting is its own uh, fascinating story. But one of the things that I find very, very poignant about Holiday's relationship in particular uh, with the Jewish songwriting tradition is in the way sh- that she uh, understood uh I think her most famous Jewish song, Strange Fruit, in a way that was a little bit different from the way that the Jewish composer of that song, Abel Mirapal, understood it. Uh, If you think about the way in which uh, the Gershwins, for example, created uh, the repertoire for many, many uh, black artists uh, in Porgy and Bass or in uh, uh, Showboat, um, uh, also a, 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 a... a book that was written, a songbook that was written by uh, Jewish uh, composers. Much of the, the the songs that Black performers like Paul Robeson were able to sing and were able to, uh, to, 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 to make their names to achieve fame and renown by singing uh, were by Jewish composers. And for many of uh, the Black performers who sang in this tradition, there didn't seem to be anything untoward about singing the songs of uh, white Jewish lyricists and composers. When Showboat was revived uh, late in the uh, 20th century, there was consternation among some African-American performers and audiences that what the black performers on stage were singing was a, uh, a very unflattering version of black history that had been written for them by by Jews. There, there's actually some um, very uncomfortable back and forth about this uh, in the 90s and the early, uh, early 2000s. Um, Billie Holiday didn't ever weigh in on whether singing uh, uh, Gershwin or singing um, Irving Berlin was in any way compromising for her. But the, 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 the song around which some of these uncomfortable energies came to, uh, came to cluster is, is Strange Fruit. And that was written for her, or it was written by a Jewish composer uh, whose name was Abel Mirapal. He wrote under the name of Lewis Allen. And he was a Jewish uh, high school teacher, labor organizer, uh, a a social justice uh, uh, warrior, someone might call him today. Very, very sincere, very powerful in his politics, very committed to using his 
artistry in order to advance his uh, his his commitment to equality, equality among the the all races, equality among uh, all all religions. And he wrote Strange Fruit, the song about lynching, uh, because he this was before the Holocaust, but he as a Jew. Um, understood and in his writings really uh, conveyed a, a strong sense, a strong awareness that as a Jew, the story of lynching was his own story. He wrote a poem that he planted in lots of different things that he wrote uh, that went, uh, I am a Jew, how may I tell? The Negro lynched reminds me well, I am a Jew. So his story about lynching, he uh, it, it's a very specific scene that he paints. It's the scene of Southern lynching. The lynched body is an African-American body. But in Mirapal's telling, the story was more universal. In Billy Holiday's rendering of that song, uh, the the story of lynching is something that for her is still very, very present, very, very real. For Mirapal, it was something that we were leaving behind. It was something that we were marching away from. It was something that the commitment to social justice would lead us away from. It would be a part of the past that we could uh, look back at and shudder, but it was something that we were not going to carry into the future. This was this was his uh, his progressive vision. For Holiday, the scene of lynching and strange fruit was very much a scene in the present. She believed that her own father had died uh, for a want of care in the in the south. He he uh, contracted pneumonia, and as she believed, could not have been treated in a in a hospital, a white hospital. And she said this was uh, another pastoral scene of the gallant south. That what that this was another kind of lynching, and that these lynchings were happening all around us all the time. And so she sang Strange Fruit as something that was a witness to something that was very, very much happening in the present. Well, Mirapal and Holiday uh, never resolved a conflict uh, that uh, uh, Mirapal uh, brought up the, uh, he, he objected to the way in which the scene of that song's composition was uh, reported, rendered in, uh, in Lady Sings the Blues. The paragraph in the book about Holiday coming into possession of this song suggested that she had had a hand in writing it. And Mirapal said, no, absolutely not. She did not write it. She had nothing to do with it. It was entirely my song. And his sons uh, continued the effort to uh, make it clear that Abel Mirapal himself had written Strange Fruit, words and music that Holiday in their view, had nothing to do with it. And of course, if you listen to Strange Fruit, you know it's Billie Holiday's song, no matter who, who wrote it. But I think it had to do with the way in which uh, these uh, the way in which the 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 telling of the scene of lynching would go and who got to tell that story and what the story uh, was about was it something that happened in the past that we could move on from or was it something that was happening in the present and so I wonder if uh, uh, you know for Billie Holiday this was uh, maybe a way of thinking about her relationship to a songwriting tradition largely Jewish, where she would get these songs, she would put her indelible stamp on them, she would make them her own. Uh, And uh, uh, the relationship between her as the artist and the Jewish producers, songwriters, composers, was perhaps never quite as smooth as it was for someone like Armstrong, who left us a record of uh, feeling and wanting to, uh, wanting to, make good on an enormous debt uh, that he experienced in relation to, uh, uh, to, to, to Jewish songwriting and Jewish production. 
Now, in the in the final chapter, you um, use elements from the Catholic tradition to help us understand um, what what you call, I think, in the introduction, the the mythopoetic nature of holidays' uh, iconicity. Um, so, in in what ways did Holiday understand herself, and how is she remembered and understood within the ideals of uh, of jazz music? Well, I think in jazz music, she she stands alone. I think uh, she she really was the first jazz singer uh, who who was who sang in the way that a great jazz instrumentalist would play. And I think she she not only taught jazz singers to sing, but she she taught many jazz instrumentalists to play. So her 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 iconicity as a jazz singer. Uh, in the uh, in the way of technique, in the way of achievement, I think she she certainly stands alone, and we don't necessarily need to bring religion in to understand that. But then there's another part to her iconicity, which sees her as a tragic heroine, someone who is beautiful and damned, to use uh, Fitzgerald Scott Fitzgerald's term, someone who is. Uh, very too beautiful for this world. Who was uh, too uh, too radiant, too uh, too talented, too beautiful to, uh, to 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 survive. That she was so enormously talented, so enormously gifted. The world had no way to appreciate her gift, and so they needed to make sure that she didn't uh, live to enjoy it, or that she didn't uh, live uh, live live a life that was uh, at all tolerable to her. So she, she very much has a, 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 carries with her, bears the weight of this narrative of tragedy, of, of being doomed, of being too good for this world, too beautiful for this world. And many uh, biographers and, and jazz fans, listeners have said, wait a minute, you know, let's just get rid of that. That's a stock narrative. That's a hackneyed story that is demeaning to her. It's demeaning to women. It's demeaning to African-American performers. Let's just lay that aside, the story of Billie Holiday's The Tragic Heroine, and let's, let's appreciate her, her genius, her music. I'm all for that. I think that that is a very uh, powerful position. But I also think that Billie Holiday herself was trained in habits of self-constitution that made it possible for her, made it uh, somehow uh, allowable for her or or inevitable and to, to, to some degree, that she would herself imagine her life in these terms uh, that she would imagine herself in the mold of, or in the tradition of many of the uh, Catholic women saints to whom she had been exposed in the Catholic reform school, who themselves lived lives of uh, great, uh, great uh, pain, great uh, uh, penance, who lived very difficult lives and in the very difficulty of those lives that they led achieved a kind of beatific radiance. And the reason I say that is because in the reform school, particularly Billie Holiday, along with other girls who entered into that environment were, uh, asked to put their own names aside. Her name at that time was Eleonora uh, Fagan or Guff. It, it later became when her mother married a, uh, a man named Guff. Uh, but she put the name Eleonora aside and took a new name, a saint's name, uh, 
Madge or Magdalene uh, in one instance and Teresa in another. She actually had two stints at the, uh, at the House of the Good Shepherd and would have uh, been encouraged, as all of the girls were, to to model herself, her choices, her behaviors in the uh, in the, the mold or the framework of, of this particular saint. And the saints to which these girls were exposed were the ones who had uh, stories like theirs or stories like um, uh, the lives that these girls were encouraged to craft for themselves, that I was in a position of great peril. I was without uh, support, without friends. I got into trouble uh, with drugs, with men, uh, with liquor, with the law, uh, with uh, various snares and temptations. And yet, having fallen very, very low, very far, I was able uh, to reconstruct my life along the path of penitence uh, or, 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 or penance. I was able to become a, a, one of these women in the Catholic tradition who, through penance, was able to uh, reconstruct a life that would be uh, uh, favored by by God. And, of course, we know that many of the stories uh, in this tradition are ones that are very damaging to women that uh, suggest lives that are very, very constrained, uh, that imagine spiritual success as a, a, a function of suffering, how much suffering uh, one is able to bear or, or sustain. And yet these were the stories that Billie Holiday was given. And I think when she tells her own story, it's very much a story of uh, pain and peril and uh, uh, prejudice many, many unfair kinds of situations, many difficult kinds of situations uh, accruing to her uh, her persona as someone who was uh, uh, very much at the mercy of uh, a, a, a difficult world. Uh, and yet from that pain, from that, uh, uh, from all of those uh, very, difficult circumstances, she was able to craft something that was uh, shining and transcendent and, uh, and radiant. And I think very much that was her sense of herself. It was a story that she was willing to tell about herself, that she knew how to tell about herself. So it shouldn't surprise us that that is the, 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 the story that many people have, um, have retained of Billie Holiday, that she was uh, damaged, that she was uh, uh, abused, that she was treated unfairly, that she lived with a great deal of pain and suffering. And yet from that uh, place of pain and suffering, she was able to, to, to create something uh, astoundingly beautiful. Well, uh, it's, it's a wonderful book and uh, it's been a real pleasure uh, hearing you talk about it as well. Uh, I must say, um, before I let you go though, uh, can you tell us some of the things you're working on now? You know, uh, Christian, ever since uh, the November 16, the November 2016 election, I have really had a hard time writing anything that didn't <laughs> attempt to come to terms somehow with our, our present moment. So my, my writing has gotten a lot more political, even though I, uh, you know, I've taught religion and politics for a long time. I'm, I'm having a, a, a I'm, I'm having to recreate that course from scratch because I don't know that anything I was able to put forward, uh, before 2016 could have predicted the, the world we're in now. So, 